This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Rachel Withers, the monthly's contributing editor, joins me to talk about the political fallout from the federal budget and much more. Then, Nobel Prize-winning scientist Sir Paul Nurse sat down with me to explore and answer the question, what is life? We delve into Paul's recent book, What is Life? Understand Biology in Five Steps. Then, finally, journalist and author Zoe Holman joined me to talk about her new book, Where the Water Ends, Seeking Refuge in Fortress Europe. We explore Europe's migration and refugee crisis. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm really, really pleased to be joined once again for the second time uh, by Rachel Withers. She is the contributing editor of The Monthly, and Rachel is joining me to talk about federal politics, particularly because um, last week on a Tuesday morning, we were talking uh, in a prospective way about what would be in the budget, and there were a number of announcements that had been made in a lot of detail through media releases from various ministers outlining some of the policies that were going to be in the budget and where the funding was allocated. So we did know about some of the things that we later heard from the Treasurer about that uh, Tuesday night at 7.30. But there was also a lot that they held on to, as is natural in a budget that is pretty massive, um, not just in monetary spending, but also in pages. And that's why so many journalists were in the lockup examining the budget in detail and helping to explain what it all means for you and I, but also for the country and society more broadly. So that is what Rachel and I are going to discuss, um, obviously not in a huge amount of depth in the sense um, that we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of one particular policy area, but we are going to try and cover some of um, the areas that were positive and then some of the areas that the government really missed. And uh, there's been, of of course, both uh, (laughs) features in this federal budget. So I welcome Rachel now. Thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Thanks, Amy. Glad to be here. And uh, I just want to check in with you. How are you doing at this point in the year covering federal politics? Because it has been a really um, roller coaster. I I guess, is an understatement. Yeah, no, sorry, um, you're cutting in and out, but I got you there. You're asking how the year is going. How the year, yeah, as a person who covers federal politics on a day-to-day basis. Look, at this point, it's it's really settled back down into something resembling normal, I guess, um, as normal as things can be in, you know, 2021. Um, but certainly you know, uh, for a few months there, it was, it was particularly, um, intense with all the stuff we had going on with women's issues. Um, but I, I'm always disappointed that it settled back into the norm because we were having some really important conversations, but now we're back to kind of politics as usual. I think I'm hearing you drop out a little bit. We'll see how we go. Okay. (laughs) Let me, I'll just, yep. See if you can Switch find to the, phone the internet part of the modem or the whatever is the modern day version. Internet. So hopefully that's better. Okay. Um, so, Rachel, in terms of you just mentioned there um, 
we were having important conversations and that is true. And it's something that we raised last time and I wanted to raise before we jump into the budget because um, I haven't really mentioned it and it really kind of slipped under the radar. But we did actually see Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese meet with Brittany Higgins. That was in probably about a month ago now, it feels like. Um, and this was something that was much touted and really because – everyone was kind of shocked and surprised that the prime minister had not actually reached out to Brittany Higgins, that he hadn't sat down with her or even called her on the phone or had his staff call her um, with his knowing. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering about your thoughts about that meeting, because we did see reports come out and certainly we saw Brittany Higgins after the meeting kind of a little bit underwhelmed, I guess, um, in terms of what the response was. She seemed to say that it was positive, but that really um, the prime minister had said, well, I'm sorry you felt that way. Um, and that that's been your experience. I'm sorry, kind of for your feelings in this situation, but it seemed that um, that wasn't really the response that Brittany was looking for and perhaps what a lot of other women would have expected. Yeah, look, I mean, the one thing that I really noticed um, in the press conference she gave after she spoke to the Prime Minister was she made a comment that he sort of seemed to get it by the end, that um, going in, he had was still as you know um, inept at responding to this as ever, but um, she did seem to imply that there had been a bit of a turning point. You know, perhaps that was him making some promises to respond to the very comprehensive list of ideas and demands she went in with. But um, of course, we haven't heard anything about those things since. So, you know, as with many things to do with Scott Morrison, let's let's wait and see. Um, certainly, uh, Brittany Higgins seems particularly good at keeping the pressure on. You know, she managed to do that with the meeting. Um, she used the media to make sure that um, that pressure was kept up. But, um, yeah, well, I, I, I have a lot of faith in Brittany Higgins, I think, to to make sure that, that something happens here. So I think we'll be waiting um, to see. Yeah, well, it's certainly, I agree, I've got a lot of confidence in her too. And she is on Twitter, if anyone's wondering. And she's, as is Grace Tame, I should mention, two brilliant women. And Brittany um, and a number of other journalists yesterday tweeted about a Canberra Times article which said that uh, Parliament staff have been ordered and cautioned to stay silent if and when approached by media um, or they'll face new consequences. So any um, parliamentary House staff who speak publicly to media, quote, could be found in breach of the Code of Conduct as well as the Criminal Code Act, which carries a prison term of up to two years. Um, this is something that Brittany has said is very concerning, and I do know that a number of other journalists have pointed out that this is a new development and something that uh, wasn't the case and obviously clearly wasn't the case uh, for the Four Corners story because we did see one of the security guards speak to Louise Milligan um, on Four Corners about this particular episode in Parliament House where Brittany Higgins um, alleges that she was raped in Minister Reynolds' office. 
So I just wondered whether you had seen that and whether you thought that was an interesting development and potentially one that is concerning um, in terms of any future issues around uh, parliamentary behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's horrifying to think that people are being silenced after, you know, a month that the theme of which was really breaking silences, you know, um, Brittany Higgins had held on to her secret for so long, she'd spoken out, um, and then, you know, we had the allegations against Christian Porter that had been held silently for so long um, by that poor woman. Um, and so, yeah, it, to, to hear now that things are being hushed back up and, you know, packaged away um, is particularly concerning. Um, and I think, again, credit to Brittany Higgins, you know, she has such a such a huge platform now. And th- that's where I heard the news. I heard it from Brittany Higgins' Twitter account. So, um, you know, I think she's going to continue to be around, um, hopefully, you know, as long as, as long as that's not doing any damage to her. Um, and she feels she can handle it, but she's going to stick around. And you know, she's writing a book. Um, Grace Tame also was clearly going to be using her a very, very big platform um, for as long as as she can. So even as these issues drift out of of the mainstream media um, and even as there are attempts made to to keep voices silenced, we've got these two really loud voices who are just not going to shut up now. Exactly. And also uh, a number of women who are seeking to amplify their voices as well. So I feel heartened by this situation. But it is, I think, important to raise it, given that, it, as you say, it drops out of the media cycle and it's kind of forgotten. And uh, it's really important that we do keep an eye on it and make sure that we talk about these issues. Now, let's talk about the federal budget. This is a really major pivotal point in the year, in a federal political year. And uh, finally, it's back to a May budget. So we're kind of back into tradition. And uh, funnily enough, I also thought it was kind of amusing, like many others did, that uh, the budget tree quickly dropped its leaves by (laughs) budget day. So, and it's a really gorgeous tree. It's this vibrant, bright red tree, and it's a really stunning feature of Parliament House. And uh, yeah, it was just an interesting, maybe parallel with the kind of change the in the air, the political change in the air that many have noted with this budget, which is that the coalition government, as we will have known for so many years, has been on Labor talking about their debt and deficit crisis, um, how they've mismanaged the economy because they've spent all this money when um, they were trying to avoid a recession uh, from the global financial crisis. And now we see a continuation of their uh, more recent change of heart in turning to spending in order to stimulate and also prop up the Australian economy particularly given that we don't have migration or very, very low levels of migration into Australia for obvious reasons, Um, but also the 
trade tensions with China certainly have affected the budget. I'm wondering what you think about this because a number of uh, more mainstream journalists on budget night said, wow, this is like a labour budget. Um, Labor might start to feel a little bit confused and jealous. And then a number of other people have said, well, I think that's a bit of an insult to Labor in the sense that, yes, it is a big spending budget, but many have pointed out that Labor's priorities would have been different. So I wonder what your take is, first of all, on the debt change of heart and also uh, the priorities that the two parties um, may have, I guess, used this opportunity for. Yeah, look, I mean, certainly they have cut into Labor's traditional territory on big spending on services um, and, you know, also in being okay with a debt if it's going to service the economy. Um, And it puts Labor in a very difficult situation because what are they going to say? Are they going to say we'd spend more? You know, um, they can't really attack the debt. They can only attack the distribution of the debt. Um, And they've certainly tried to differentiate themselves in that way by um, saying that, that, you know, how can you spend this much money and still not be addressing, you know, wage growth? And um, so I think, I think, you know, we should be glad that the um, coalition government hasn't decided to pivot back to austerity. Um, They had certainly made it clear um, in the weeks leading up to the budget that there was going to be no sharp pivot, um, and we should we should be glad that there hasn't been. Um, but yeah, you know, if you're Labor right now, how how do you differentiate yourself? Um, what do you actually say that you're going to do differently, other than we would do differently? Um, and we haven't really seen that yet. You know, um, the shadow treasurer uh, Jim Chalmers has, has you know said. He wants to make it clear this is still a Liberal budget. The Liberal Party wants you to still think it's a Liberal budget. Um, but we still haven't heard from um, Chalmers or Albanese, you know, where they would seriously diverge, you know. They, they would, of course, spend more money on childcare. Their childcare policy went went bigger. Um, I dare say they'd spend more on aged care because the huge spending we've seen on aged care still isn't anywhere near enough what was called for by the Royal Commission. Um, But we haven't heard them actually putting out other figures. Um, We haven't heard them differentiate themselves on the tax cuts yet. Um, Certainly they are calling for a further extension of the tax cuts for lower and middle income earners, but they haven't yet decided to set themselves apart on um, the big stage three tax cuts that are still um, scheduled. Um, And I think uh, hopefully as the, uh, you know, as we get closer to the election, we might start to hear Labor actually explain, you know, why this is not a Labor-like budget and what a Labor budget would actually look like. Yeah. Well, there are so many points in there. But one, I think, is uh, obviously Labor's response or kind of lack of a decent response. Uh, I was expecting something a little bit more fiery on Thursday night from Anthony Albanese, given his previous track record, especially on the issue of, for example, Brittany Higgins and the Women's March. He gave some really impressive speeches in Parliament House in question time and otherwise um, that I think seemed to remind people why he got the Labor leadership. Um, So I guess I was expecting something a little bit more from him 
on the Thursday night. Perhaps he mm. didn't want to kind of push uh, too hard because the response to the budget has been so uh, or fairly broadly positive. So I guess in that sense, it maybe isn't politically um, going to benefit him at this point. But uh, one of the things that I wonder is when you were watching the budget reply, was was there anything in that reply and in that speech that stood out to you? Because I certainly um, tried really hard to concentrate on that reply, but I really started to switch off because the, you know, the delivery was lacking, but also the language was very, yeah, just missing. There was something really missing there. Yeah. Look, well, when I was watching it, I was quite taken in by the the, the major policy announcement, which is the $10 billion uh, for social housing. Mm. Um, and, you know, and that was addressing, that was also speaking to some of the women's issues, you know, a certain number of, of that housing supply was going to be for women fleeing domestic violence. Um, but, yeah, it, that was kind of it, really. Um, when you actually, you know, I, I listened to the whole thing and, and I thought that was great policy, but then looking at... Um, you know, the, the actual figures on paper afterwards, because that's something that we don't get. Uh, the journalists, you know, there's no lockup for um, the budget reply, so you get the articles trickling out just afterwards. And there was really no other spending commitments in there. Um, you know, there was plenty of criticism, um, and I think that's what, you know, the, some of the criticism was good to hear, you know, this um, complaining about, you know, the government not committing any funding to... Um, extra quarantine facilities, but then there was no commitment to do that themselves. Um, and, you know, there's an argument as to whether Labor is actually laying out an alternative budget or not. That's not really what the budget reply is. But the, th the fact is, if you're going to lay out, you know, $10 billion for social housing, why don't you why don't you suggest a few other things? Or why don't you actually talk through what you would do now that we've all accepted that $10 billion here, $10 billion there, you know, is, is an acceptable way to talk? Um, mm -hmm. Why isn't Labor using this opportunity to actually, you know, announce some some spending? Because it, no matter what it does, it's still going to be seen as the biggest spender. So why not actually get some credit for it by actually, you know, announcing some exciting, inspiring policies? And, yeah. you know, I don't want to downplay the, the social housing policy because that really was a great policy and it's very, it's very much on brand for Anthony Albanese um, with, his, with, his, with his upbringing. But, um, yeah, just give us a little more. Give us something on climate. You know, there was um, $100 million for some um, green energy apprenticeships um, and training. But, you know, that's – with the crisis we're in, that's not really – you know, a hundred million in the scheme of this, you know, <laughs> billions yeah. and billions of dollars of uh, deficits. Um, give us something on climate, you know, give us, there would have been maybe a great time to make a commitment on emissions reduction targets and lay out some plans for how to get there. But there was just nothing, nothing there really. Mm. Well, it, it reminds me of the fact that essentially there are some really key points that Labor could be making that do differentiate them from the coalition. You've mentioned their climate change, which is a very, very stark one because so many um, 
well, not all people, but <laughs> some people did note its omission and also just the environment in general, given that a review of the environment law, the major federal law, has been undertaken. It's before the coalition, um, before Susan Lee, the minister, and really it's um, really lacking in terms of an area of spend and perhaps not surprisingly to those who listen to this show. But that's one area. Another area is obviously tertiary education. Um, Universities and TAFE, for example, Mm. have done very poorly um, under the coalition. Private colleges Uh, also unsurprisingly did a bit better but I wonder you know is this an area that Labor could have focused on is uh, you know they're they're very keen on innovation and you know um, the future of tech and um, and R&D and this is something that Labor certainly has in the past focused on and they are really the party of tertiary education in their history um, given that they've historically a very long time ago at least uh, offered university places for free and um, have usually prioritised education at all levels as something Mm. that they differentiate themselves on. So do you think that is, you know, potentially one area they could have also focused on and, um, and made some political mileage out of? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's really disappointing that we haven't heard much from them on that. Um, I think, you know, throughout the year, Um, some of what we've been hearing has been to do with green manufacturing. And then we saw that again with, um, you know, green apprenticeships, but, you know, universities are, have truly been left out in the cold um, over the past 12 months. And they don't really have a a major defender in the form of the opposition. Um, You know, there's, there isn't really someone standing up for them in there. Uh, The Greens sort of will, will uh, talk about it, but, yeah, it was, it was a big omission, um, especially when universities are considered really one of the very, very few losers in this budget. Mm, well, it certainly does um, disturb a number of people given how much the universities have actually lost across this pandemic, given that they do not have any certainty around when international students will be allowed back into the country. Um, and that certainly is really tied to the vaccine rollout which is something that was really, I guess, um, maybe an elephant in the room to some extent because uh, the budget has to make assumptions, as we heard on budget night, around when the population or the majority of the population will be vaccinated and therefore when it would technically be safe or the most safe time to actually open our borders. And it actually has been something really making headlines even in the last day or so. Mm. We've seen big business decide to stick its head up again. Uh, Perhaps they had a a business council meeting and decided now was the time. But uh, we do hear many voices as of today and yesterday, including Jane Herdlicker, the CEO of Virgin, which is obviously a transport company, an airline company, say that uh, we should be opening our borders uh, ASAP and, you know, even if some people die, well, that's the, the cost of opening up. I mean, this is something that we heard of in the throes of the pandemic, something that even the coalition government was open to and we saw the states push back 
on the coalition and saying, no, that's not acceptable. I mean, I was kind of shocked that we're back in some kind of groundhog day where we're having the same debates about whether it's okay for, you know, a certain number of people to die. Yeah, look, I mean, the Virgin Seer certainly didn't uh, phrase that particularly diplomatically. But I think what's interesting is you're right, we are back in this um, should we open up, should we remain closed debate, but the positions have shifted around. So it's not just business calling for us to open up now. There's been a bunch of really highly respected medical and health experts also saying that we do have to let go of this closed bunker mentality. Um, we saw some leaked comments from Victoria's chief chief health officer, Brett Sutton, um, we saw the former deputy uh, federal chief health, health, that's a hard one, health officer, um, Nick Coatsworth <laughs> on the weekend. Um, and then, you know, at Jane Holton, who did the review of um, um, the quarantine facilities early on, she's also, uh, she was on the drum last night calling for, you know, for, for us to start talking about opening back up. But it's the federal government who, you know, Honestly, a month ago, Scott Morrison was talking about letting us go travelling sometime this year. Um, they're the ones who have really tightened down and, um, you know, they're reading the the mood, I think, which is a lot of Australians are still quite anxious and, and don't want the virus back in the community. Um, state governments who have been particularly hard you know, hard line about keeping the virus out of the communities have been rewarded in state elections. And so um, the federal government has now decided it's going to be on that side. It's going to be on the cautious, safe, um, wrapped in cotton wool uh, side of things. But, you know, when you have the medical experts now and the health experts now saying that we have to start thinking differently, um, you know, it's suddenly quite compelling. And this is a federal government that insists it's always listening to the health advice. Um, but now the health advice, you know, and, and, and also some of the um, epidemiology experts too are saying Australia does have to open back up at some point. We are going to have to have the virus in the community again. We need to all be vaccinated. Um, and that is something that is supposed to happen by the end of the year if the budget assumptions are to be believed. But you know, we do have to open back up and we do have to start to change this mindset that we can't have any COVID in the community. And the, the federal government is really, you know, stoking those those fears and those anxieties um, when the experts are starting to say, no, it's, it's time to start pushing the other way. Mm, well, this is something that brings up some clear tensions. And I think one of the interesting points about this that we need to emphasise is that uh, people like epidemiologist Mary Louise McLaws, who I speak to quite often, as well as um, the editor of the Medical Journal of Australia, Nicholas Talley, who I've also spoken to before, you know, they're talking about, yes, we need to start having that conversation so that the Australian population is primed to be aware that this is going to happen mm. at some point, you know, so it's still, uh, uh, I guess, an intellectual possibility that will eventuate. But the thing that they have pointed out very forcefully in the last few days and even prior was that the Australian population need to be able to have been given the chance to be fully vaccinated, as in dose one and dose two, before borders open. And 
the reason why it seems that the coalition government is happy to wrap everyone up in cotton wool at this point is because they've bungled the vaccine rollout. They didn't buy enough of a range of vaccines. They're now at this point, you know, announcing further Pfizer doses. They've just done a deal with Moderna um, of 25 million doses. 10 million of those will be the normal vaccine and 15 million of them will be the variants booster. So we are seeing some advancement there. But we did also see after the budget, when pushed, Scott Morrison say, well, you know, maybe the whole of the country won't be fully vaccinated by the end of the year, but hopefully everyone will have at least had their first dose by then. So, Mm. I mean, this is kind of really highlighting the coalition's weakness in a policy sense because they haven't dealt with hotel quarantine in this budget um, in terms of funding, and they also haven't uh, set targets again provided a clear route to full vaccination for all adults in the country who want to take it up. And therefore, now we're getting this, you know, circular argument from business and others saying we need to open up. Well, clearly we do. I don't know who would kind of deny that in a sense, you know, of wanting more migration, wanting the economy to be doing well, wanting tourism to start up more. But we also need to make sure that public health is still covered and therefore everyone having that chance to take up a vaccine. So I guess what are your thoughts about that tension between the fact that and also perhaps maybe that this is, I guess, a smokescreen or a political choice that the coalition have taken to mask some of their poor policy delivery. Yeah, certainly, um, you know, they're telling us that we'll, we'll all be vaccinated or at least one dose by the end of the year, but then that date for reopening is still mid next year. Um, so it's clear there's not a lot of confidence of actually reaching that promised target. Um, I think... You know, a lot of this will, the timing of both when the rollout is complete and when we can talk about a staged reopening, you know, they're interdependent and they're also independent, interdependent on the, the timing of the election. Um, and I think the government's still sort of trying to work out what's going to suit it best, but it might be better for them politically to, um, to sort of you know, they're not going to hit these vaccine rollout targets anyway, but to keep expectations of next year, uh, to keep the expectations there, to not set any more ambitious opening target and then be able to go to an election, to an early election late this year or early next year, while everyone is still um, not vaccinated and uncomfortable with the borders opening and therefore more comfortable sticking with the government they've got that's also, you know, promising to keep them safe and keep the borders closed and um, ride the back of that, you know, incumbent boosting pandemic wave. Um, But, of course, if the rollout is going too badly, if if, um, they go to the election at a point where, you know, the rollout, the um, sort of just how behind it is, is particularly apparent, that's not going to be good for them either. So, that you know, it's going to be a really difficult dance for them, I think, trying to set expectations but also be able to go to an election at a time where those expectations are not being, you know, horrifically mismanaged um, and unmet. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of of questions in the air about timing right now and, and 
Scott Morrison is a you know political pragmatist and he's going to to do whatever is best for his electoral chances because obviously the the most important thing to them right now is actually the the next election being that in uh, sometime before May 2022 but uh, potentially sometime this year. Mm, well it is really I guess a very stark uh, demonstration of public health being used as a political football to potentially win an election. Uh, well, that's how it appears on the surface. Um, and it's certainly something that, you know, perhaps Australians aren't as aware of uh, in the sense that it's kind of become a very noisy area um, and an area that's become quite confusing as to mm. uh, what's happening because we've seen just so many contradictions in messaging and contradictions in policy announcements. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, what are your thoughts about how the electorate are kind of receiving not just the budget, but I guess the coalition in general in terms of how they've been managing in the pandemic? Yeah, well, look, what's interesting is there was a, a news poll on Sunday and, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but the budget was really well received by people um, as it was meant to be. It was a spend-a-thon, um, you know, Josh Frydenberg doesn't like calling it that, but, you know, there was spending for everyone, you know, everyone was a winner. But um, the actual two-party preferred um, vote didn't change at all. Labor remained ahead, 5149. Um, and so, yeah, it, you know, the, the political um, commentators are calling this an election budget. You know, it was supposed to be full of election sweeteners. There's a there's a fund there for even more election sweeteners, you know, $9 uh, billion um, that's earmarked for future announcements. Um, but, it, you know, as much as it was a popular budget, it didn't actually translate into any actual, you know, further votes for the coalition, at least according to the polls. Mm. So... You know, it's not maybe people are not, you know, necessarily reading this as an election budget. Maybe, you know, the way that it's been framed as, as a pandemic budget, maybe people just think, yeah, this is important spending for the economy and, and not necessarily um, seeing it as a suite of election promises. Um, but, yeah, certainly I think that news poll might have complicated things for the government, which surely would have expected a boost from such a, a well-received budget. It was the most uh, well-received since Peter Costello's in 2007. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I'd be scratching my heads if I was them um, trying to work out how to actually make that translate to votes because they would obviously prefer to be uh, up in the two-party preferred vote at this stage. Yeah, well, it's still close because I guess there's a, a margin of error, but it's um, it's not where they would want to be. And I guess that's why they're hedging their bets on vaccines and oh, yeah. uh, border openings. I mean, I'd still be confident if I was them on 51, yeah. down 51.49, you know, that's still, that's still probably an election winning position for them. Um, mm. But, you know, to not have seen at least a little shift in the vote that you would have expected would have been um, disappointing. Yeah, yeah. Just finally, Rachel, uh, there is an area that I found interesting um, and I guess hasn't been discussed as much, and that was in the communications and culture portfolio, and particularly looking at uh, the broadcasters. So SBS had a boost of $30 million in funding, the Australian Associated Press, Newswire Service received $15 million, Community Broadcasting got $8 million, um, 
but the ABC, it appears, due to a number of factors, may have a shortfall across the year of about $10 million <laughs> in funding. Um, that's obviously not a surprise to people who've uh, followed how the coalition government perceives and views the ABC and the role of a public broadcaster. Um, but I wanted to, I guess, note that and also to note another element, a related element that um, we discussed on the program uh, a week or so ago, and that was around the national institutions in Canberra. So um, interestingly, mm. and I hadn't noted this until Greg Jericho pointed it out. But um, in fact, all the collecting institutions apart from the National Archives are in the communications portfolio. And he pointed out that they all received a funding boost. However, the National Archives of Australia are in the Attorney General's department and they didn't receive any additional funding. So, I mean, that's pretty concerning given in recent days we've seen the National Archives actually call for donations from the public in order to save mm. its materials. And I just wondered if you had any observations about those developments. Yeah, look, it's just, it goes to show that even though um, this was, you know, the ideology-free budget, as as Frydenberg is saying, there's no ideology in a pandemic, but there still was ideology there because... Um, as much as almost everyone was a winner, the um, the areas that are not, you know, coalition favourites, you know, missed out. There wasn't necessarily cuts, um, although they may, may end up being cuts in real terms, but, you know, everyone was a winner except for the, the coalition's traditional uh, enemies. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, that's, a, yeah, a really good point, and we should point out, you know, when there are these discrepancies between the messaging and the the spin and also what the political and policy reality is. Rachel, it's just been such a pleasure to chat with you and to talk about some of these really crucial issues, some of which haven't been covered um, nearly enough in the media. And I hope that uh, we can continue the conversation uh, throughout the rest of the year and catch up again later. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Amy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And it is my absolute pleasure and delight to welcome onto the program Sir Paul Nurse. Paul is a geneticist and cell biologist, and his discoveries, along with colleagues, have helped to explain how the cell controls its cycle of growth and division. And that's something we will get into in just a moment. Really wonderfully, Paul's contribution to cell biology and cancer research were recognised in 1999 with a knighthood and also his endeavours relating to the discovery of cell cycle regulatory molecules saw him jointly awarded the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 2001. And since 2011, he has been the director and CEO of the Francis Crick Institute, which I believe he is at right now in London. And I'm going to be speaking with Paul about his book, which was released at the end of last year here in Australia. It's called What is Life? 
understand biology in five steps. I really can't wait to talk about all of these topics with you, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it and welcome onto the show. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. As someone who has a real keen interest in science and particularly biology and even more particularly in fungi, I've got to say I really enjoyed this book. But that said, and I wonder if this is a common thread, and I certainly have heard anecdotally some people say similar things, but from a personal perspective, when I studied science, including things like biology and chemistry in secondary school or high school, a lot of it didn't really resonate and nothing particularly then inspired me in the way that it does in my adult life. However, reading this book, it seems like maybe that wasn't the case for you. So I wondered, when were you first inspired and excited by biology and the cells, the idea of cells that you cover in this book? And do you think that's a common experience or is there kind of a, a, I guess, a diversity of experiences in terms of when people get, I guess, enlightened by or excited by and inspired by the ideas of science and in particular biology? Well, what I think is, I'm not sure we teach science particularly well at school, to be quite honest with you. And that applies to biology as well as the um, other sciences, physics and chemistry and so on. And I think part of the problem is that when we teach it. It's like uh, communicating a lot of facts that are chiseled in stone, and it somehow lacks life. And in this book, I, I wanted really to say where ideas and things come from. But you asked me, when did I get first interested in science? And it's quite a difficult question to answer, because I, I, I've always been interested in the natural world. And I start this book actually with a story, really. It's a sort of half metaphor, half reality um, in a description of a yellow butterfly flying in to the garden um, where I was sitting when I was um, a teenager or perhaps a little bit before. And when I started to wonder about what it is that um, makes that butterfly alive, what, what, what is characteristic about it? And how, for that matter, does that butterfly relate to me? because I'm alive too, and so I share some commonalities with that butterfly. But that was just part of my interest, excitement about science, which was outside school, probably, uh, as much as inside school. I was also interested in looking at the night sky, looking at the stars, looking at the planets moving around. And all this was just fascinated me. I was also fascinated by other things as well. I'm actually very curious person so it, it, it isn't just science but it certainly was early on I couldn't have been much older than 11 or 12 and it has stayed with me but really the point I would like to emphasize school teaching of science in school has got to convey excitement and I'm not sure it always does and that's something we have to think about. Yes, you really made that point so clearly, the idea that it's all about life and the natural world. And if you have this really strong connection with the natural world, you are really connecting with science and connecting with cells. Obviously, the first chapter of this book is talking intricately about cells and how they're made up and what they do. So maybe we should jump into that first chapter, given it's such a foundational chapter and will spring us into the latter 
concepts that you talk about, because I, I should reference, as you say, in the title or the subtitle, there are five steps or five ideas. So I, I wanted to, I guess, take us through, if you don't mind, some of these ideas, starting with the cell. And I guess maybe I'll point out a couple of favourite facts from that chapter, which I was just astounded by. One of them was that when you're looking at an egg that a chicken has laid and you crack it open, that yellow yolk inside is one single cell, which I just can't even get my mind around. And the other fascinating fact that follows was that an individual nerve cell, or at least some of them that exist in the human body, can reach from the base of your spine all the way to the tip of your big toe, which means one of those individual nerve cells can be about a metre long. This is something that I had never heard of, and I wonder how many others would encounter these amazing ideas and facts in their own lives or beyond their higher education. Well, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? I mean, mm. we have this idea, this picture of a cell as being tiny, and indeed most of them are, to be fair, and um, yet some of them are really huge. And when you have a boiled egg in the morning for breakfast, you are looking at a cell. Um, but most of us don't realise that. In fact, I first thought I saw a cell uh, when I was at school and looked under a microscope at a sort of squash of um, a, a root tip um, from an onion, I think. And I saw these arrays of, of boxes, which were cells. And I thought that was the first cell I'd seen. It was only later I realised I'd been looking at one um, at most of my breakfast when I was eating an egg. And of course, the nerve cell in your leg that you refer to is incredibly long. But most cells are much smaller. They are really 10, 20, um, 30 microns, we call it. That's a, a millionth of a metre. So they are really, really small. Uh, and we are, in fact, made up of, of, of billions of cells. But just some of them are large and some of them we see every day when we have an egg. And you do say that all human beings have begun from a single cell as well. Well, I do, because I want to excite you with the idea of a cell. Uh, you know, if you're not interested in what you were once like when you were just a fertilised egg in your mother's body, and if you're not excited by that, then what will you be excited about? <laughs> I mean, we were all once a single cell. So I, I think we should be interested in cells. Oh, I agree. After reading this chapter, I was very excited by cells. I think it was probably one of my favourite chapters because there are so many as you say, differences, but also similarities in these concepts. And that's what is really fascinating. I would love to hear about your experiences studying cells, because um, as you've said, uh, you are a geneticist, but you've looked at in great depth, the genetics of yeast. Um, <laughs> and what does that have to do with cells? And also what relevance do yeast cells have with, for example, human cells? Yes, it's a very good question. Well, I, the reason I got into cells was because I was thinking, what is an important problem in biology? And, you know, all living things reproduce. It's a characteristic of life, isn't it? And mm. uh, the simplest example of that reproduction is um, around the cell, because the cell is the um, simple, basic unit of life. It's life's atom is what I sometimes call it. And when a cell divides, it's the simplest example of biological 
reproduction. So when I was thinking of what I should do in my research life, I thought, well, understanding how a cell controls its reproduction from one to two is uh, understanding a very fundamental feature of all life. And that seemed to be something that was worth investing my time in. So that's how I, I started thinking about the problem. And then I thought, well, this could be quite complicated because when I started that work, we didn't know anything about it, to be quite um, frank with you. And so perhaps the best approach is to take the uh, to look at a very simple system. And I chose yeast because yeast is rather easy to investigate. It's got fantastic genetics and it grows rapidly. It's cheap to work with. But despite that simplicity, it shares many features in common um, with all um, other fungi, because yeast is a fungus, um, other plants and animals, including our cells. In other words, the cells that make up fungi, uh, plants and animals all have um, many common features. And so studying yeast, um, when I started, I thought just might be relevant to human cells. And that did turn out to be the case. Although, to be honest with you, uh, most people at the time when I started weren't quite so sure that it would be um, as similar as I've just explained, but that did turn out to be so. Yes. Well, you also talk about, and you've just mentioned there, cell division being the basis of the growth and development of all living organisms. And um, you do talk about the fact that cell division can be seen in a positive light, of course, because it means that the cells are dividing and replicating and, and fulfilling certain functions. But it can also have negative consequences, for example, in cancer, where cancer is caused by the uncontrolled growth and division of cells. So I wonder if you could share with us the function of cells and how you can see such different positive and negative functions within a human body when it comes to cells. Well, Actually, the basis of most things that we do can find their origins with cells. So the way we work can be seen in the functioning of individual cells that then make up tissues, that then make up organs. And then, of course, the organs together make up an, an organism, including a human being. So cells are central to ourselves as a, as a living thing. But, of course, cells can go wrong. And in, in the case of cancer, what happens is that uh, there's damage to the genes that control a cell growth and cell reproduction. Because every time a cell divides, it actually copies its genes and separates them into two newly dividing cells. These genes are important for uh, do, uh, uh, regulating and uh, controlling uh, many aspects of what cells do. Now, there's a subset of genes, and us humans have got over 20,000 genes. There's a subset of them, maybe 300, maybe 400 in humans, that are very important for um, cell reproduction and controlling cell reproduction. And if these genes um, get damaged in particular ways, then um, certain cells can go out of control. So they grow and reproduce when they shouldn't be. I mean, obviously, growth and reproduction is very important if uh, in the, uh, a baby growing to become an adult or if you um, cut yourself in repairing wounds and repairing damage. But that's because um, it's occurring in the right place and at the right time. But in the case of cancer, the damage to these controlling genes results in cells growing and dividing and reproducing themselves 
um, in the wrong place and at the wrong time. And that fundamentally forms a tumor. So the, the basic processes, which are the basis of our life, when they are damaged, can form cancer, which, of course, challenges our life. So that's, that's the paradox. Mm, it's a really interesting one too. And I did love your example in the book where you were saying if you got a paper cut on your finger from this book on that piece of paper you're holding, well, the cells in your body are the ones that are fixing that wound and creating the skin that covers over the cut in your finger. So it's really exciting and you know fascinating to know that it's part of healing as much as it's part of malignancy when things go wrong and um, a challenge, certainly a challenge for medicine. It really is. And it's something we never think about, isn't it, really? Mm. I mean, they, they, they keep us alive and um, in, in many ways. And when it goes wrong, of course, it um, can challenge being alive. Yes, we certainly take it for granted. And one of the things I loved, and it, it, you've just mentioned their genetics, obviously being a key component within cells. And let's jump into that chapter because that is the next idea that you talk about in this idea of what is life. And you give some really interesting historical examples of where our concepts of inheritance and genetics developed and how it did across time in science. And uh, there is a very interesting person by the name of Gregor Mendel from what is now the Czech Republic and was, you say, was the first person to make some sense of the mysteries of inheritance and interestingly was studying in depth um, something which wouldn't really occur to, I guess, many people today to do, which is to study 10,000 different pea plants. Could you share with us what was so special about the experiments that he was conducting and what they told us about genes and cells? I'd be delighted to to do that, Amy, um, because one of the things I've tried to do in this book is to actually trace the origins of some of these ideas, because often people think everything's been discovered and, and invented in the last two, three decades. And mm. that really isn't the case. We were talking of cells. They were discovered in 1665 in Oxford, actually, the, the town in, in which I, I live. But in the case of genes, the idea of genes has its origins. It wasn't completely formed then. This monk, Gregor Mendel, he uh, it was in a monastery in Bruno, which was then in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, uh, now in the Czech Republic. And this gardening monk belonged to an order of, of teachers uh, and scientists, actually. I didn't really fully appreciate that till I read into this. And he was encouraged to do experiments in the monastery. So he had a very big greenhouse and a very big garden. And I visited the garden in the 1980s in the middle of the Cold War when I was a, um, a young researcher. And I was really astonished by how big the uh, facilities were for encouraging um, Mendel's research. And what he did is he, he was interested in the inheritance of characteristics from one generation to another uh, in, in a variety of plants, but he um, settled on study of the pea plant. And he, he took a sort of very physical approach to this problem. He counted what he saw. He, he was sort of quantitative. Biologists often at that time particularly described what they saw. And what he did was not only describe, but counted. So by doing that, he realized that if he crossed plants with, say, different colors of flowers together, 
um, and then studied uh, the progeny produced in the subsequent generations, that um, often those colors segregated with very fixed and clear ratios, ratios like three to one or one to two to one. And this got him thinking. And what he thought is it, it, it seemed to him that there was something going on with particles being segregated so that they would uh, come out in certain specific numbers. He didn't really quite work it out, uh, but it was the origins of the thinking of um, a particulate inheritance that we would now think of, of as genes. But you know, the amazing thing is, although he basically um, opened the door to genetics, nobody took the slightest bit of notice of what he'd done. He'd published it, people had read it, it's even appeared in the Encyclopedia Britannica, but they didn't understand or didn't appreciate the um, revolution that he had started. And it was rediscovered 35 years later by three plant geneticists um, who repeated the experiments and I think were a bit irritated to find that the gardening monk had done it all 35 years um, previously. And very soon after that, the concept of the gene was clearly born and we now call it Mendelian genetics, how all these factors segregate in honor of of the gardening monk, the geneticist. And uh, I think it's a great story and really something we should, we should all know. When I visit the Czech Republic, they don't know that they have one of the most famous scientists of all time um, <laughs> in the, the little town of Bruno and they knew nothing about it. Oh, I can't believe he's not on the back of a coin or a note or something. I'm afraid he isn't. I mean, oh. um, I, I actually have got involved in, in, in at the beginnings of a, 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 a little museum now that is in the monastery. So it is now more appreciated, I have to say, but certainly not, uh, not understood or appreciated by the majority of people, despite the fact that he did all his work in that little town. That's really interesting and so exciting really to think that these ideas are coming from what is um, to some scientists an unlikely place or to them maybe they were disappointed that they're scooped in science. <laughs> but it, I, I love the point that you make in the book, which is that science is really iterative and that people are building on previous knowledge and even previous mistakes and it's constantly a process of drawing from the past. So I really do love that idea given how relevant it is for today. So it's great that you bring that out and tell us about these wonderful people. And one of the really fascinating parts about that genes chapter for me is something that I, you know, wasn't really aware of and haven't really studied much. But you say that apart from a few specialised exceptions like red blood cells, which as they mature, lose their entire nucleus and therefore all their genes, every cell in your body contains a copy of your entire complement of genes. And together those genes play a big role in directing the development of a fully formed body from a lone fertilised egg cell. It's kind of astounding to think that such critical information that really directs so much of how a human being presents their physical attributes, but also even other parts of how they function and present in the world could be copied into each cell in your body. It's amazing, isn't it? And of course, what it means is that each cell in the body has this code script of life, but because the cells differ in what they do, um, not all the genes have a role in the different cells. So there's a complex 
regulatory network that controls which genes are active and which genes are inactive. And it, it's that control which determines how the cells operate and therefore how they contribute um, to the whole organism, how they make an organ, how that organ functions. So uh, although the code script is, um, in, uh, is in every cell, um, by the way, in some organisms, uh, there is loss of, of, of some genes. So it's not completely universal, but it, 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 it's very, very common that that's the case. Mm. But the way in which you produce different behaviours is by expressing different sets of genes. It's a, it's a, a very important um, characteristic. For someone who is not initiated into the world of genetics as you are, I'd love to get a better understanding of these concepts that we hear about all the time and that you have spoken about, I know in previous interviews where you were talking about the double helix, we have all these concepts about genetics and DNA and chromosomes that we learn about at a, a kind of basic level. But I feel that we never really understand or get beyond that idea of the concept or the visual symbol of the double helix. And that certainly has been my experience is that I kind of know what DNA is for but I really don't know where it all fits in the life of the cell. So uh, given that you do make such really fascinating points about DNA and you say that um, if you could somehow join together and then stretch out all the DNA coiled up inside your body's several trillion cells into a single slender thread, it'd be about 20 billion kilometres long, which is long enough to stretch from the earth to the sun and back 65 times. I mean, just another fact that I just love to hear, but could you share with us what these concepts are for those who might be struggling to connect the ideas between the cell, between genes, chromosomes and DNA? Yes, this is, um, this is very important, of course, because we, we sometimes, I think, get a, a, a bit distracted by the, the double helix structure of DNA because it, it, it's iconic it's um, in, in some sense is quite beautiful, but it distracts us from what the real meaning of the double helix is, because what it really is, it, uh, is if you were to sort of unwind it, it, it's a ladder. And the ladder has got rungs going across from one side to another. And um, each of those rungs is uh, made up of what are, are called bases. And there's a, a base on one side of the uh, rung and another base on the other side. And they uh, are complementary, so that if you have a, a base uh, G, then you have to have another base called C on the other side. And if there's one called A, that's got to uh, have T on the other side. Now, what this basically means is that if you rip those uh, uh, two sides of the ladder apart, um, then you can copy it precisely by putting a G on a C and a T on an A and so on. So you can get reproduction of the code script of, of DNA. So that's the first sort of lesson that, that is really important. The second is that the order of those bases are like letters in words and sentences. It's basically a, a, a digital um, um, information device, um, just like a computer or just as I just said, words on a page, or for that matter, the um, words I'm speaking now. And a sort of universally efficient way to store information is through linear 
digital storage of, um, of, of different letters, essentially. And in DNA, it's the A, the G, the C, and the T. So what you have with DNA is a molecule that can be precisely reproduced and a molecule that encodes information. And you can see if you put those two ideas together, then you have a molecular basis for heredity. And that was one of the greatest discoveries, some would say the greatest discovery of biology in the 20th um, century, and is key to understanding how life works. I don't know if that helps, Amy, but um, <laughs> that would be my summary of it. It does, it does, it certainly does. And in terms of the ideas that link in with genes and DNA, I think it's become more in our everyday language, given this pandemic is uh, still ongoing and certainly a real concern for a number of countries. And even in the news, I've noted that we hear things like variants, genome sequencing, mutations. These are all concepts that are very crucial to this idea of what is life. And it's something that we are talking about in news articles and in news stories every day now. So it's something, interestingly, that's become more relevant in a, a general sense to the general population and people potentially want to understand the meaning of these things, given that it really does affect their everyday life. And one thing I noted was that when we talk about variants of concern with coronavirus, for example, we have heard things like mutant strains. And um, an example would be um, in India where people have identified a so-called mutant. So I wondered whether you could share with us what the word um, mutant or concept of mutant means in genetics, because you do identify that as something that perhaps is misunderstood at times. Well, Amy, you're quite right. This pandemic has suddenly pushed science, particularly biological science, um, constantly in the news. And, and um, I now have conversations with people um, who would never normally think about it, um, uh, really wanting to know all of this stuff. And um, although the pandemic has been dreadful, um, recognizing um, the science underneath it, I think has been really uh, quite important. And one of the um, concepts there is the one you've just mentioned, the, the notion of, of mutants and mutant strains and mutations. And that's closely related to what I just said about the informational content, um, content of nucleic acid, of DNA, um, deoxyribonucleic acid, and in the case of the coronavirus, um, another closely related molecule called RNA, ribonucleic um, acid. Because uh, uh, the, the, why uh, um, we have these mutant strains is because this code, which I said, if it was DNA, would be A, G, uh, C, and T, um, there will be mistakes made, um, mistakes in the sense that uh, there are differences, um, either caused by a defect in the uh, reproduction of the double helix in the case of DNA molecules, or um, perhaps damage from um, external um uh, uh, causes you know like sunlight and radiation and so on so what happens instead of let's say having um a sequence a g c t you might end up with a a c t so you've you've changed one base with another base and that changes the information it's like um uh, if you have a, a sentence um um i sat on the mat right Mm -hmm. And then you have a mutation in the word mat 
so it becomes I sat on the cat, it's a completely different meaning. You're no longer sitting on the mat, on the mat you're sitting on a cat. And that changes um, what the sentence means. And if it was an organism, it would change how the organism operates. And that is a mutant, a mutation that makes a mutant strain with different characteristics. And when you mention the India um, variant of coronavirus, um, we already know that it spreads faster, it infects um, um, more um, rapidly. And so it um, results in more people um, suffering the disease because of that particular mutant strain. And basically what's happened in the, that mutant strain is I, I sat on the mat has changed to I sat on the cat. Yeah, so it certainly is very different meaning, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, very different. Yeah, yeah. I don't think the cat would be very happy. Uh, so, Paul, you close that chapter by talking about your own personal experiences. And I really loved how you brought in your life experiences throughout this book, because it's certainly very relatable in terms of some of the experiences you've had. And one of them is something that is related to genetics and where you came from or who you came from. And I wondered if you could share with us that story, just because it was a really interesting one. Yes, it was an interesting one. And um, it, the, the background really is I came from a working class family, not academic, living in northwest London in Wembley, where the stadium is actually. And um, I had um, uh, two brothers and a sister. Um, and um, the, uh, I was the only one who stayed on at school. Everybody else left school at 15 and, and so on. And uh, I went to university like you did and um, stayed in um, universities and did research and so on. So became an academic, um, whereas um, everybody else in my family did not. So being a geneticist, I did wonder why that was the case, but I didn't have any reasons that I could uh, give as to why that was the case. And many, many years later, I was in my 50s, I was actually president of a university in New York in the United States called Rockefeller University, a research university. And I was applying for a green card, that is a residence card in the United States. And uh, I applied and, uh, so that I wouldn't have to queue up at immigration and so on. And to my surprise, I was rejected. I was a bit surprised because I was, as you pointed out, knighted by them and I had a Nobel Prize. I was president of a very famous university and um, Homeland Security rejected me and they didn't like my birth certificate. Now, my birth certificate, which I'd had since I, I was born, um, named who I was and my birth date and that I was a, a British uh, citizen, but it didn't name my parents. It was a so-called short birth um, a certificate and the um, US authorities didn't like the fact that my parents weren't named and so I wrote um, back to um, the registry offices in in London because I was living in New York and asked for a long birth certificate which is uh, you could easily get mm. and when it came and I opened the envelope or it was given to me I looked at the, the birth certificate, of course, because uh, I was going to package it off and send it to um, the US authorities. And the name there for my mother was not the name of my mother, which astonished me. And then I looked more carefully and it was actually the name of my sister, or to be more precise, the person I thought was my sister. Now, my sister was 
18 years older than, than me. And I was left home when I was actually two or three years of, of age. So I knew her, um, but um, I, I certainly didn't remember her very well when she was at home, though I saw quite a lot of her later. And what had happened is that um, she got pregnant at 17. She was sent away to her aunt. It's like a Victorian novel, really, um, and gave birth to me in Norwich. It's 100 miles or more from um, London. And my grandmother came up to Norwich and pretended that she was the mother to protect her daughter. So brought me back, um, pretending to be my mother. I was never adopted officially. This couldn't happen today, of course. Mm. Uh, um, but I, I was never adopted. And I was brought up thinking that my grandparents were my parents. And although I knew my sister mother, I tend to call people could everybody change their position in my family? I sort of, well, she was my sister, now she's my mother, so it became sister mother. When I found all this out, by the way, my grandparents, who were my parents, and my um, mother, who was my sister, um, had all died. So I, I couldn't check all of this, though I did find somebody who confirmed it to me. And the other thing that might interest you is that uh, I looked for my father, and on this birth certificate, there was just a line. There was no name of my father. So I still don't know who my father is. Now, uh, the irony here, isn't it, Amy? I'm a <laughs> geneticist. I'm actually quite a good geneticist. Yeah. And yet my own genetics was kept secret by my rather simple working class family for over half a century. I only found this out in my late 50s. So mm -hmm. it is quite extraordinary. Yes, it does kind of feel like maybe you were meant to be in genetics and maybe that's partially so? why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> By oh, the way, amazing. I will say something. I should say yeah. something. They never told me, but mm. everybody was doing their best for me. I mean, they just, mm. they, you know, I didn't have a, a, any um, unhappiness in my life or anything. And it's just what happened then. It wouldn't happen today. Um, and it was to, just to protect my mother. So I'm just grateful for everybody. Um, that they did their best for me. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And certainly, I'm sure it's not the only example in that time period. Um, it certainly wasn't accepted in Australia, you know, for young women at that age to have children, and they were often had their children taken from them. So um, it's really great that your grandparents, you know, kept you and looked after you so that you could stay with your family. It really was. And I, you know, I'd have quite liked somebody to tell me who my father was, I have yeah. to say. Um, but, <laughs> was he um, into science at all? <laughs> well, you know, I imagined that I imagined um, all sorts of things, but mm. um, I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that. No, it certainly echoes the idea in science that there are so many mysteries and so many things that we don't know. And even when you were looking into yeast, as you said at the start, when you were investigating that whole area i mean you pretty much didn't know about yeast and you i think i recall reading that you kind of sequenced yeast like various kinds of yeast and it took like a number of years to even do something like that that now would take a few hours it's absolutely true i i was involved in in genetics and sequencing DNA. And the first genes that I identified, which uh, now uh, over 40 years ago, took a year to sequence just one small gene. And you could do it actually even minutes now, or, or seconds really. Mm. And uh, I also sequenced fission yeast, my lab organized that. 
And um, it was a third sort of big organism that was uh, sequenced. And that took 100 people. I had to put together 100 people to get that done. We can now do it overnight with one machine and one person. It's completely extraordinary, the advances. Well, it certainly probably means you can make more advances faster if you have a hunch. And you do, in this book, have a number of hunches that actually turn out to be pretty good ones. So it sounds like you've got very good scientific intuition as much as all the knowledge as well. Um, and I love the story of you, you know, chucking a Petri dish in a bin and coming back to the lab <laughs> after because you had that hunch. Yes, that's a funny story too. I was isolating yeah. mutants and they grow on this sort of jelly on a Petri dish and uh, it's quite a laborious task I was doing and this particular plate was covered with a fungus so it was very difficult to, to, to isolate the mutant strain that I was very interested in and I already had quite a few examples of it and um, they'd all turned out to be the same so I thought this one will be the same as well but what happened is I threw it away I felt guilty about it I was living in Edinburgh I cycled back in the rain later on that night retrieved it from the rubbish as you rightly said and of course it unlocked it was the key that unlocked understanding how cells reproduce themselves because it was different to the mutants I had already isolated and it connected to another mutant and the whole thing fell into place and Mm. yet it was on the edge of being completely thrown away and um, without me retrieving it from the rubbish uh, I doubt if I'd have won a Nobel Prize. That's amazing. In the context of Edinburgh, dark at night in the rain with all those hills and cobbled stone streets and everything, I'm pretty impressed that you did cycle back. Oh, yeah. Well, I it did take a bit of persuasion. The guilt had to be pretty high, I'd have to say. Um, yeah. I just kept thinking about it. And then three or four hours later, I thought, I've just got to go and get it out. Oh, it's so good. I love it. And that is something that you talk about is this idea of how the cell cycle is controlled. And you draw out a number of the scientific experiments that you conducted. And I was really interested in how three ideas come together. We haven't yet spoken about it. And I guess it's the elephant in the room that everyone's probably thinking about, which is evolution by natural selection. Mm, And mm. I wrote in my notes here, what does yeast evolution by natural selection, what did those two things have to do with cancer? Well, you know, there's a couple of things here I'd like to say. One is, of course, cancer evolves. I mean, so the uh, the, the process of, of evolution by natural selection that gives rise to all the rich diversity of life is also the basis of cancer because the genes that get damaged that cause cancer result in those cells growing more than normal cells and so um, outgrowing them. And this is really the same concept of evolution by natural selection. But there's something else in here too that I really would like to um, talk about, Amy, which is this. Um, My lab uh, discovered the genes that controlled the reproduction of a cell from one to two in yeast. But, you know, if I'm quite honest, I mean, most people aren't really that interested in yeast. I happen to be, (laughs) but I realise I'm a bit odd. But they are interested in what controls um, the division of our own cells. And this was at a time when the human genome hadn't been sequenced. We didn't know very much about the genes that made up humans. And so a postdoc in my lab called Melanie Lee, she did a really exciting experiment that we never thought would work, but did. What she did is she took a library of human genes, in fact, the very first 
uh, library that was made, because this is back in the 1980s. And we sprinkled that library of human genes, um, metaphorically, basically, but we sprinkled the genes onto a mutant yeast strain that was defective in the key controlling gene that controlled reproduction and would prevent a yeast cell from reproducing. And the notion was that if there was a gene in humans that did the same job as the gene in yeast that controlled the reproduction of yeast, then it could rescue that um, defective strain so that the yeast strain which was altered in this gene would be um, growing because of the presence of the human gene doing the same job, should such a human gene exist, which most people thought was extremely unlikely. Well, the reality was it did work. Um, there is a human gene that does it. It did get transferred into um, some of the yeast cells. We, those cells grew. We isolated the gene back. We sequenced it. And it was remarkably similar to the yeast gene. Now, uh, what does that mean? Well, the uh, yeast cells diverged from um, the lineages that gave rise to human cells almost certainly over a billion years ago, probably 1.5 billion years ago. So what it means is, is that the mechanism that controls the reproduction of cells has remained the same for one and a half billion years. It's completely mind boggling wow. yet again, like the egg, one and a half billion years. To put that in perspective, dinosaurs went extinct only 65 million years ago, and this is 1.5 billion years. So it, a highly conserved mechanism, being around for one and a half um, billion years, and means that we can investigate how human cells control their division and their reproduction by studying yeast cells. Now, who would have believed that? I mean, it, it <laughs> just doesn't seem likely, but it happens to be true. Yes. Well, isn't it lucky that you and your colleagues are that obsessed with yeast? Well, I'd say so. Because Very lucky. Now, now we can reveal the secrets, if you like, of how these complicated processes work mm. by studying a simplified version that then can guide the more difficult experiments that have to be done in human cells. So it's it's like the the breaking the boundaries and those working on, on human cells can follow behind because we've shown them the way to go. Oh, it's amazing. And Paul, there are a couple of chapters after those that we've discussed and we just mentioned evolution by natural selection and in the book you go through the three crucial characteristics that you need for that to take place um, that they need to reproduce have a hereditary system and the hereditary system must exhibit variability we won't get into all the detail of natural selection but I did want to give you the chance and ask the chance to hear about the last couple of concepts, particularly life is information and life as information being such a crucial one that you point out and something that I know you're particularly passionate about as a, an idea and something to talk about when we're understanding this overall point of the book, which is what is life. So hopefully you might be able to share with us your thoughts on that just at the end of this interview to bring some of these threads together. I'd be delighted to do so. The two further chapters argue, as you've just very elegantly and eloquently said, that life is based on chemistry. Chemical reactions um, is the basis of um, what our cells do. 
and key to that is um, information, because life is based on information too. Not simply just in DNA, but it, it's necessary, the management of information to get life to work together as a whole. So life as information and life as chemistry are the two other ideas. Now, those five ideas that we've talked about, the cell, the gene, evolution by natural selection, life as information, life as chemistry, led really to these principles that I end the book with. And it starts with the idea that we use probably the greatest idea in biology from Charles Darwin, evolution by natural selection, as a key cornerstone for defining life. Because if you can evolve by natural selection, then you can produce purposeful behavior without having a designer, a divine creator. And as you rightly just said, to evolve by natural selection, you have to be able to reproduce, you have to have a hereditary system, and that has to exhibit variability. And if it does, then the genes change somewhat. And those um, organisms which are more effective and better suited to their environment will tend to out reproduce those that are not. And so that results in organisms being more perfectly adapted to the environment. So this allows life to form. And uh, the idea that you are a, a chemical, physical and information machine simply allows that to take place because that means that a living thing has a metabolism, can maintain themselves, they can grow and reproduce, and therefore produce evolution by natural selection. So these are sort of principles in thinking about what life is. And I speculate on the chemistry of life. I speculate on how this applies to intermediate life forms like viruses. And I also um, speculate on what life might be like on in uh, another solar system or elsewhere. But it all centers on the concepts that I've just explained, which if you look at the book, you'll fully understand. And really the bottom message is life is beautiful and understanding it is it's a great sort of intellectual exercise and it also I think makes us as individuals to respect other life forms more because um, in a sense um, we're related to every living thing on the planet. I explained that with uh, yeast some some of our relatives are distant some are close and we also interact with all these other life forms on the planet we're completely dependent upon them so for me this is an argument for why we should respect and conserve other life our biosphere because it is our relatives <laughs> and it is in fact we're completely dependent upon them mm. and so these are these are ideas I explore a bit more fully in that book you do. And um, and the thing that I think resonated on a very personal level was your gorilla story, meeting the silverback gorilla in, I think it was Uganda, and feeling this sense of connectedness, looking into the gorilla's eyes, seeing similar body language and behaviour in those gorillas, and saying that this idea that we're very closely related to gorillas, I think it was 96% in terms of the level of relatedness that we have with them, but the fact that it, it made you realise that's why we need to care for nature, but it also made me realise maybe that's why we feel so connected to nature, people who are more aware of their surroundings and have more, I guess, openness to these ideas is that perhaps that's why we feel this kind of inherent empathy and feeling and sentiment towards the natural world. 
Well, the gorilla incident was, in a sense, transformational for me. I, I mean, sitting there with this huge silverback only three meters away from me, staring at me, not, not aggressively, with some curiosity. And I was having a conversation through our eyes. He was recognizing, it was a he, and I was recognizing the fact that we have things in common. It was clear. And mm. um, it just, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Well, I feel like I do have that with other animals, but I haven't met a gorilla. So maybe <laughs> one day. Paul, it's just been such a delight to speak with you. And I'm so grateful for your very precious time and for taking the time to explain these concepts to us and your book overall, which is called What is Life? Understand Biology in Five Steps. And uh, I really can't wait to see all the great work that you continue to do, I'm sure, as a scientist. I feel like most scientists never really stop, do they? No, they don't. I, I shall never retire, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us today and taking the time. Thank you, Amy. It's been a great conversation. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And I have got uh, Zoe back on the phone this time and uh, the trusty old phone. Hopefully we don't have any other technical issues. So thanks for bearing with us, everyone. Uh, now I'm welcoming Zoe back. Hi there, Zoe. Hi, good to be back. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. Um, now the question that I asked, um, some even listeners may have forgotten, but I'll just uh, do a brief version of that question that I was asking, which was that you opened the book setting the scene uh, of the history between Greece and Turkey, uh, which certainly has features conflict and uh, violence and um, upheaval, migration upheaval even uh, between those two, which I found really interesting. Um, and obviously because they have a close relationship uh, geographically but also in that historical sense, it's very interesting now to see how there has been this deal between the European Union, of which Greece is still a part of, uh, although has a, a very tense relationship at times with, and of course, Turkey. So I wondered if you could just set the scene for us in terms of the history between these two nations, uh, Greece and Turkey, and then how we've um, come to a very different uh, refugee seeking asylum arrangement between these two countries. Yes, I mean, I'm by no means a geopolitical analyst. However, one thing that um, really struck me when I began researching this book or just living in Greece was this um, Greece's own backdrop of displacement and exile that had been the result of its kind of ongoing historic conflict with Turkey. So part of what I focus on in the book is what's um, called the so-called 1922 population exchange. And that was when, like, after, you know, a very protracted and very bloody conflict. Um, the EU and, I mean, sorry, it's Greece and Turkey finally agreed on their borders. And as part of that agreement, they agreed to exchange, in inverted commas, um, citizens. So you had approximately you know, one million, I think, um, Christians um, from Turkey who were then living in Turkey were then forcibly um, sort of displaced to Greece and from Greece itself, um, I think several hundred thousand um, Muslims were, were returned to Turkey and they were kind of assimilated as citizens of those two countries respectively. And um, I guess just considering this history and the kind of 
fluidity that had existed between these two countries in terms of religion and language and culture, to see these border now so heavily policed and such um, nationalist antagonism kind of bred between these two countries was really striking. And it, it, um, it made me really kind of sad in many ways that for this kind of history of, you know, more exchange and more kind of um, interconnectedness that had kind of been airbrushed, you know, in the 20th century by this, um, this tide of nationalism and conflict. So that was a really interesting kind of context through which to consider what was now happening in Greece. You know, I think it was often forefront in the minds of many Greeks themselves when they approached what was happening, when they considered what was happening in sort of 2015, 2016. Many people would say to me, oh, my um, my grandparents were, were refugees from, from Turkey, so I can, you know, I can begin to understand this experience of exile that people are now facing when they're coming to Greece. So that was a really um, interesting framework, I felt, um, and it was hard to ignore those kind of residences. Um, more specifically, I mean, what we have kind of the opposite um, trajectory now in the 20th, oh, the 2020, where there's heightening antagonism between these two countries. Um, but of course, there is cooperation when it comes to migration because the vast, vast majority of um, migrants who come into Europe are coming from Turkey into Greece, as you know, Turkey being the, the closest point to Greece. So um, many of your listeners will probably remember that sort of 2015 when we had these huge, um, massive amount of arrivals coming from Turkey and arriving in Greece by boat to the, the Greece Aegean Islands. And at that time, the borders were open into Europe. So most people who arrived in Greece would um, arrive in Greece and then travel freely across the mainland up into other EU countries was where most people sought asylum. Most people didn't stay in Greece at that time. However, with a kind of um, let's say, heightening scepticism or anxiety about migration. Many of the EU countries at the beginning of 2016 started closing their borders and this um, culminated in the complete closure of the land route into Europe from Greece. And at the same time, we saw EU leaders signing what's called the EU-Turkey deal. So this is March 2016. The EU-Turkey deal um, is basically a kind of quid pro quo whereby the EU... Um, is going to pay Turkey around $6 billion in in aid to try and halt migrations into the EU. And at the same time, um, the, the Turkey will agree to accept returned asylum seekers, rejected asylum seekers from Greece to, to Turkey. So it's a kind of exchange whereby... Turkey is purportedly acting as a sort of border police border guard to try and minimise um, arrivals into the EU and is paid out by the EU. Of course, um, this deal has radically uh, shifted the, the paradigm or radically reshaped the paradigm of migration into Europe because since that deal, anyone who arrives to Greece and the majority of them are to the Greek Aegean Islands are forcibly um, restricted to stay at the site of arrival until their asylum um, claim for refugee status in Greece has been processed. So most people arriving to the islands, that means a waiting time of anywhere between months and years on those islands living in camps. So um, the majority of those people are also not accepted at first as asylum in Greece, but it means basically we have the situation that we have today, which is in excess of 100,000 people who are effectively stuck in Greece, waiting interminably and in transit for their asylum claims to be processed with very little hope 
um, of stability at the end of that process. So that's uh, the situation that we have today. And many of your listeners probably will have seen these scenes of overcrowded islands, overcrowded camps, and that is a direct result of this EU-Turkey deal, which has really kind of seen the weaponization and politicization of, of refugees themselves in this, you know, geopolitical game between the EU and Turkey. Mm. Yeah, it, it certainly, I mean, would ring bells to many Australians hearing that story, um, given our situation with asylum seekers and refugees, people who have uh, tried to get to Australia and failed to and are also stuck in places like Indonesia trying to get through in the UNHCR process, which, as anyone, you know, who would have paid even cursory attention can tell is a really long, drawn-out process and it means that people, you know, can't make a living because, you know, they're not technically a citizen of places um, like Indonesia. But let's go to one of the places that is really the heart of this story and you mentioned Greek islands. Uh, there's the island of Lesbos, which is um, an island that I, you know, was very familiar with uh, having studied the wonderful Greek poet Sappho, uh, because that's, of course, where she lived and came from and wrote these beautiful um, poems. So it has this really strong uh, historical and mythological type of um reputation, I guess, for many people who study the arts, but it certainly now um, has a lot of other uh, parts to its reputation and it certainly doesn't sound like a place that anyone wants to get stuck on if they are um, a person who is not a Greek citizen, who is uh, not a tourist, who is seeking asylum and refuge uh, in Greece and trying to get to another country. Um, so, I wonder if you could share with us your experiences and understanding of Lesbos and the situation there at the moment. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's obviously a really complex um, place, as in most places in Greece, in terms of the intersection of, you know, economic crisis and culture and now what's happening with the migration situation. But, um, you know, in that respect, um, over the last, um, since 2015. Um, yeah, I've been going there pretty regularly several times a year, um, you know, and it's been very interesting to watch the way in which um, the situation there has escalated, I think, just with increasing numbers of people stuck in the island. So, for example, in 2015, um, as you mentioned, like Lesbos was a kind of focal point of this, um, the world's gaze, the so-called EU mig migrant crisis, and we had thousands of people arriving on the island. We also had this huge um, upsurge in kind of solidarity and welcoming and, the, you know, community involvement and people assisting migrants and you know, amazing, amazing acts of solidarity. I think, you know, Lesbos was... Many parties on Lesbos were also nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for this, you know, kind of um, this reception of migrants. Um, however, like since to the EU-Turkey deal, since people have become stuck on the island there, that has really, really um, changed. And... Um, so Moria camp, which is the main camp on Lesbos, was um, until two, until last year um, was housing around eight between eight and nineteen thousand people. So it grew to this absolutely huge slum, basically by by the end of twenty twenty. And it was very interesting to go there over that time and to see the way this camp had. Um, sprawled way beyond its so-called fences and really became like a kind of shanty town, you know. Um, and um, 
then many of you you may remember that like towards the end of 2020 during the COVID situation during the COVID lockdown there was a fire a fire broke out, out at Moria camp and that fire was kind of a direct result of this you know incendiary discontent and suffering and um and tension that had just been breeding in that camp over you know over the previous years and so the camp was burnt to the ground and um, in its place, the um, Greek authorities hastily erected another camp, which is sort of known as Moria 2.0. Um, and that camp is, um, you know, inconceivably actually worse than the, the first Moria camp. So it's built um, on, as a kind of cruel joke, a former military firing range that's um, based right on the coast um, totally exposed to the elements. Um, there's no, nothing in the way of um, electricity a couple of hours a day. There's, I mean, appalling sanitation um, conditions, no running water, um, filthy, filthy toilets, very little health provision. Um, so that's been the case since the end of 2020, since October 2020. There's about 10,000 people housed in that camp in a state of lockdown under the premise of, you know, COVID restrictions, which has really just become a, a kind of ploy to um, to contain people there in that camp. So that's been increasingly... Um, yeah, disturbing, disturbing trajectory. And now the Greek government is, um, as they have been advocating for recent years, is really angling to build a closed detention centre on the island. Um, so that will effectively keep refugees out of the town, keep them, you know, isolated um, and, you know, um, under the cover of darkness, which is... Um, is, of course, a huge concern and source of objection to asylum seekers themselves and solidarians, but also the local community on Lesbos, who are extremely resistant to the idea that this is going to become a permanent feature of their island. Mm. Well, uh, there's that obvious tension between locals and those seeking refuge and asylum from the conflict and, you know, terror that essentially has led to them having to leave their home countries. Uh, And we will get to some of that in just a second, but I did want to pick up on uh, some of the people that you meet over there working, for example, with Médecins Sans Frontières. You talk about a mental health team in Moria who were witnessing unprecedented uh, counts of self-harm and attempted suicide. Uh, They observed, you say, that among a group of around 70 children aged 6 to 18, nearly a quarter had self-harmed and either attempted or considered suicide. There are many examples of um, elective mutism, panic attacks, anxiety, aggression, uh, recurrent nightmares, and you quote one of the senior clinical psychiatrists who wrote an open letter uh, about their experiences at the camp saying, quote, in all of my years of medical practice, I have never witnessed such overwhelming numbers of people suffering from serious mental health conditions as I'm witnessing now amongst refugees on the island of Lesbos. In their island prison, they are forced to live in a context that promotes frequent violence in all its forms. I mean, this is a similar story to the stories that we hear about uh, the asylum seekers and refugees that are trapped over uh, in places like Manus Island. Um, And it's certainly something that is not surprising when you're in a situation that is 
precarious, that has no certainty, um, that is clearly insecure in many circumstances. I wonder if you could, I guess, respond to that and tell us about, you know, what you had observed. And given that the psychiatrist says that they've seen, you know, violence in all kinds of forms, is this a place that, you know, uh, highlights intersections and uh, causes more vulnerability for women and children, for example? Totally. And um, I mean, another disturbing development is I think I was just reading that um, counts of self-harm and um, have increased something like more than 60% since the COVID lockdown. So even what was existing in Moria several years ago when that report was documented has really escalated to whole new levels. Um, and I guess something that I did want to explore in the book was... Um, you know, we have all these reports from NGOs and all these condemnations and all these statistics, but I guess I wanted to get a bit more inside that experience of thinking about, okay, what what does it what does it feel like to be told you're going to live in a tent in this camp for the next three years? Like, what's the subjective experience of that? And, you know, um, to sort of document some of those more personal um, individual accounts of violence. But absolutely right. I mean, in terms of the um, the effect on minors and women, I mean, there's an absolute scourge of sexual assault. Women cannot go to the bathroom by themselves. They're not safe in their own, whatever small private space they might have, they're not safe. I've been had heard about women threatened with knives, tents being ripped apart. Um, and the same for minors. I mean, there was purportedly a minors section of the Moria camp, but that was by no means secure. I mean, just harrowing, harrowing stories of, you know, teenage boys being raped, um, being mugged, being physically assaulted. There was um, a teenage boy who was killed with a knife. Um, I mean... And not to mention, unfortunately, the brutality from the um, police and security guards in the Commas in the camp itself. So there's just so many layers of violence um, in these camps. Um, and I think beyond that, beyond the, the kind of, um, you know, cultural or individual conflict that's happening in those camps, I wanted to explore also this idea of the more structural violence. So um, many people have described what's happening in Greece and on the Greek islands as a kind of necropolitics, you know, a system that is really engineered to push people through denial of shelter, through denial of food, through denial of health, through denial of safety to a kind of um, an end, you know, and I think that's, it's very hard to consider what's happening um in Europe or in Greece, um, outside of that kind of view, it's like, what is what is the end point here? What are, what are we hoping to achieve by putting people in this completely interminable, dire situation? How can we expect someone to survive this? You know, and I think it raises some very troubling questions about the kind of ideologies that are informing EU politics. And as you're very right in um, pointing out that parallel between Australia and um, Europe, because I suppose... The main thing that struck me when I first came to Lesbos and saw that Moria camp, I thought, you know, Baxter, Warmora, like I was, it was something out of the kind of blueprint of Australia's own um, harsh and, and violent refugee policy. So, of course, you know, we have seen the same effects on a human level with those um, epidemics of self-harm, of, you know, endless transient, of, um, of suicide, of, you know, um, of violence. So there's so many bleak parallels there. And, um, yeah, I think it is really um, cause for interrogating, yeah, what kind of ideologies and values are informing these policies. Mm, that's an excellent point about structural violence and, you know, pushing 
human beings to the brink and causing really a lot of the conditions that lead to some of these behaviours and uh, mental health challenges and conditions. Uh, Let's talk about some of the individuals that you met. And given the situation in Palestine at the moment, um, I thought it would be pertinent to touch on some of that. And also, as you say, um, having lived over there, um, no doubt it's something that I know people would be really interested to hear about. You talk about an individual um, called Tamir, and uh, you talk about this in um, really interesting detail in terms of the situation for them. So I'm just going to quote a little bit about it. Um, The quote is, you get two minutes warning in Gaza before your home is bombed. First, there is a phone call from the Israeli security forces informing you that your house is about to be targeted. The clock starts then, Tamir explains. Next, the warning rocket strikes, after which you know you have about 60 seconds. Then comes the F-16. He shows me YouTube footage on his phone, a streetscape of his uncle's three-storey apartment building with the video timer ticking over at the bottom of the screen. The suburban silence is broken by the first blast at 026 seconds. A rocket through the roof, trailing brown smoke. Something shatters, a woman shrieks, and there is a flurry of voices, a man shouting orders. Nobody leaves the building. I'll leave it there because there's a lot more to go, but I just wanted to, I guess, set the scene a little and give people an idea of the tone and the, you know, stories that are pervasive throughout the book. And I maybe just kind of wanted to ask your experiences meeting some of these people, including Tamir and the situations that they have found themselves in. um, And I guess the complexity of the situation when they and their families are seeking to leave uh, these places and to actually seek asylum and refuge. Yeah, of course. And I guess that was, uh, um, you know, the most powerful and compelling part of working on this book was to meet people and hear just these insane, insane stories that people have, you know, or experiences that people have have endured. Um, So, yeah, for example, Tamir, who's a young man from Gaza, um, who actually has left Gaza three times attempting to seek asylum um, in Europe. Uh, He's now in Greece, but one of those those journeys that I document in more detail is when he was... um, when he travelled to Norway um, the, set, the first time he left Gaza, um, following on from his brother and um, sister who had previously um, sought and been awarded asylum in Norway. So he kind of went there with this expectation that he, you know, he would have the same treatment, um, you know, waiting a couple of weeks for his asylum process to be claimed and, and, um, and then probably awarded asylum. Um, but, yeah, of course he found himself not in that situation at all, but in um, closed detention centres in remote parts of the country um, for up, you know, four years um, with very, very little freedom of movement um, throughout that time. And then at the end of that four years to be to be met with multiple rejections of his asylum claim and told that he was going to be deported back to Gaza, which, um, you know, as a document in the book, he and uh, a bunch of other Palestinian men resisted by protest, um, protesting um, in an encampment for I think 10 months in the centre of Oslo um, outside the King's Palace. Um, At the end of that process, however, they were all deported um, back to Gaza and some of them were met with uh, Gaza or the West Bank and some of them were met with death on arrival. Um, So that was one of the kind of more Kafkaesque, I suppose, um, situations that I wanted to document. But also um, that story struck me because 
you know, we think of Europe and in particular Norway and Scandinavia as representing this very, you know, enlightened, progressive, human rights focused approach. And yet um, the the violence and the, the callousness with which um, these asylum seekers were met in Norway and just the bureaucratic absurdity of the situation was really was really striking. And I think, um, I mean, that was a an extreme example because it's in Scandinavia, but those sort of stories are just felt um, or heard repeated, you know, throughout Europe, just this insane bureaucracy, this kind of, um, yeah, administrative inhumanity and just the way this is delivered again and again to individuals, regardless of, you know, however dire or however their circumstances or however, you know, um, strong the merit for their asylum claim is. It just seemed that there was this machinery that was so immune to humanity that was determined to keep people out of Europe, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, given um, that they're the people who are, for example, in Maria Campo are waiting really for a very long time to have their claims processed and it seems like, as you say, it's this bureaucratic nightmare and it's confusing and seems quite illogical at times. So I wonder just to close out this conversation, if you could share with us, you know, how likely or um, what is the likely situation for people who are living on Lesbos at the moment, who are making this um, trek and waiting there in very dire situations? Is there any hope really in terms of um, how their claims are being processed in terms of the timing, but also the success rate? Um, unfortunately, Amy, I wish I could say that I was more hopeful, but um, the situation is becoming increasingly dire, as I see it, especially under the current right-wing New Democracy government in Greece, who has really kind of heightened this punitive trajectory um, against asylum seekers arriving to Greece. There's, I think, an acceptance rate of something like 30%, and even those people who are granted asylum in Greece are still in totally precarious conditions whereby they are, um, have no access to social security, housing support, um, language training or anything. So, so many of these people who are granted asylum immediately find that their um, income is cut off. They're sent to the mainland and hundreds of them find themselves living on the streets because, of course, you know, you don't speak the language. You've got, you know, five children dependent. I mean, it's just a joke that we can expect people to suddenly be economically self-sufficient um, in that kind of environment in a country that itself, you know, has mass levels of unemployment and economic crisis. So, unfortunately, there is very little um, security and stability at the end of this journey for people when they arrive in Greece. Um, and, of course, I think it's important to emphasise that... Um, you know, the, though this has been framed as a kind of crisis and the, the, the instability and the, the chaos that we see on the islands, this is actually a direct outcome of policy, of EU policy that's got, you know, $7 billion worth of EU funding thrown in it. So unless we really see a major shift in that policy, unfortunately, I'm not hopeful that the, the lived reality for people arriving in Greece is really going to improve um, anytime soon. Uh, it's so, been so great to chat with you, Zoe, and uh, I know we've really just scratched the surface. There are so many really wonderful stories and they draw out the broader picture here uh, in terms of what you've described and the situation for people seeking asylum in Europe. So thank you very much for taking the time and also congratulations on this book. I do hope people get to read it. It's called Where the Water Ends, Seeking Refuge in Fortress Europe and it's published by Melbourne Uni Press. Thanks so much, Zoe. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. 
Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.